Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. And if you will, turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, at verse 22, where we're in our second study on this book of Numbers, and we want to read the blessing that the Lord tells Moses and Aaron to speak, and Aaron's sons. And I want to read that, and then we want to get our context for this. So hear the word of the Lord, Numbers chapter 6, at verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them." The book of Numbers that we're beginning our study of is a story that is written to a people whose lives are between the accomplishment of their redemption in that great exodus from Egypt and its consummation when they enter the promised land. And Numbers essentially is not a book that you read and consider in and of itself. It's part of the first five books of the Bible. And it essentially picks up where the books of Genesis and Exodus leave off. We remember that God chose the family of Abraham and redeemed them from their bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And He brought them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where the law was given and where He graciously entered into a covenant with them. They would be His people and He would be their God. And as a token of God's promise, He gave them the tabernacle, a tent in which God would dwell in the midst of them. And thus, the people live in a time when God has redeemed them from their bondage, but He has not yet brought them into the promised land. Their present experience is the wilderness. In fact, the name of the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is in the wilderness. It's taken from the first chapter, the first verse, where it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. That word, in the wilderness, is the Hebrew name. When uh, the Greek Greek translation of the book of Numbers took place before the coming of Christ, for some reason it was named the book of Numbers because there is a census at the beginning and then again near the end of the book. So we could also think of it as the book that's called In the Wilderness. It's not the fullness of salvation in the promised land. And note the parallels just as we begin to Christian experience that uh, Jesus says in John chapter 16, in this life you will have tribulation. The Christian is in the wilderness in one sense. We think of John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, where where Pilgrim becomes a Christian near the beginning of the book, and then there's all these trials and temptations and wilderness-like experiences. But in the wilderness, 
We know that Jesus Christ is present with us by the Spirit of God. And he says he is with us always in Matthew 28, even to the end of the age. So the Israelites were in the wilderness, but they had God present with them in the tabernacle. And the wilderness experience was a hard one for them. It was seemingly purposeless. It's interesting that the book of Numbers begins with a census of the first generation, of the fighting men of the first generation, because they are preparing to enter the land. But we all know, if you know your Bible very well, that that first generation did not enter it. Then God, because of unbelief, because they didn't receive the report that was given to them with faith, they did not enter in. They did not live by faith. And so, This book, there is this wandering in the desert for 36 chapters. And then there's a census of the second generation because the book ends uh, with the second generation about to enter the land. And the fighting men are counted at that point because they're going to enter into this holy war to take the land and to dispossess the tribes that are there. So there is this seemingly purposeless, frustrating, hard period of wilderness wandering where the second generation is being prepared, the first generation is slowly dying off, and God is in control of the storyline. And again, we are reminded of what Christian experience is like, aren't we? How Often we look at our lives and we we believe God has purposes for what He's doing, but we don't understand those things. And often life can seem very mundane or boring. It doesn't seem like God's doing much in our lives or there are great difficulties we face. There are a lot of parallels between the book of Numbers and our own experience. And because the second generation has just begun to prepare to enter the land, we really don't know at the end of the book of Numbers how they're going to do. How do we continue to walk by faith in the wilderness? Well, certainly by founding our lives on the Word of God, the promises of God, the commands of God, and by remembering that the holy God is present with us. This same holy God of the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the God who is altogether other, and we'll talk more about that, that He is present with us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And speaking of that, we think about the structure of Numbers. As we move through this book, you'll, you'll notice that we're not reading and preaching on every verse. But what we have in the book of Numbers is narrative regularly interspersed with sections of law. And this law reminds us that our holy God who dwells with us demands our obedience, that He is our covenant Lord, that He was their covenant Lord. And we must remember that um, God dwelt among them, but there were various stipulations and regulations that had to be fulfilled Since God is holy, His people must be holy as well. And as you read through the book of Numbers, possibly on your own, the parts that we aren't going to read out loud, uh, you might think, well, boy, why exactly was that regulation in place? And what about this? And what about that? These are not arbitrary and meaningless regulations. These laws are the way of life. They are the way of blessing. 
and of a life lived in the presence of God according to His holy word. And so in chapter 5, after chapters 1 through 4, and after God has organized the camp with the 12 tribes camped each night around the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, each tribe having his appointed place. And then with the Levites camped between the tabernacle and the the people, we find in chapter 5 that having organized the camp, God gives his people some case studies that relate to his holiness and to the precautions about sin and defilement. And in, I'm not going to read all these, but in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, there's the, there, there are issues with unintentional ritual defilement because of things that people might have done and so forth. And then chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, talks about deliberate sin, actually, that has been re- repented of. And then the rest of chapter 5 is a very in-depth case about a case law about adultery that a, a charge of adultery without evidence. And we can look at each of these in depth. But there are various solutions to each of them. In some of them, the person has to go outside of the camp for a while. And that wasn't for the purpose of hygiene. That was because of the holiness of God. In other cases, there had to be restitution and various offerings. And in the third case, the test for adultery, the judgment was ultimately in God's hand, if you read through that. But in each case, whether it's uncleanness ceremonially, in other words, defilement, whether it's actual transgression or whether it's adultery, or we might say even spiritual uh, adultery in our case, we must remember that the solution for us as believers is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, suffered outside the camp. An ancient Jew would have understood very much what it was for Jesus to die outside of the city, outside the camp. He took his defi- our defilement on him. His life was our sin offering. Isaiah 53 describes it so clearly that he became the sin offering for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. And so chapter 5 points us to the holiness of God. Chapter 6, which also we're not going to read, is about the Nazarite vow. And maybe when you think of the Nazarite vow, you think of two of the famous Nazarite vow takers in the Old Testament, both Samuel and Samson. Samuel, a good example of this. Samson, a very negative example. But here we have the stipulations about how a man or a woman can make a special vow. And the Nazarite vow involved abstaining from grapes and alcohol completely or anything having to do with grapes and letting his or her hair grow, not cut your hair, and to stay away from any dead bodies. And the Nazarite vow was a temporary separation from normal life, not typically like Samson and Samuel to be lifelong. It was a temporary separation, a vow someone took to be devoted to God in a special way, a symbol of consecration to the Lord. 
And that symbolism and that Nazarite vow really was to be indicative of what the nation of Israel as a whole was to be, set apart and consecrated to God. And these symbols of the things that a Nazarite was supposed to abstain from, that he was abstained from all kinds of grapes or alcohol, that certainly would have indicated a turning away from the normal pleasures of life for the time of this vow. The hair not being cut, hair often signified the life of the individual, giving your life completely to God and to His control. And the idea of not touching or be involved with the dead body, even if it's a relative or even if it's accidental, it goes into great lengths about what's to be done in that case and the offerings and so forth. This idea of extreme separation from the realm of death to serve the living God. And certainly, Samson was not a good example because he broke the Nazarite vow left and right. And the ultimate Nazarite, we might say, again, is our Savior Jesus Christ. He did not take this vow, and he did not do these kinds of things, but he was the ultimate Nazarite consecrated to God, not merely by outward symbol, but by the inner reality of perfect holiness in every aspect of his character and heart and mind and soul and life and word and deed, completely consecrated to God, So he could turn water into wine by his power in John chapter 1. In Luke chapter 8, he touched a dead body and brought it back to life again. And he set aside all the normal comforts, we might say, all the glory and all the comfort of heaven coming in, in his incarnation to live and to die for us. Well, that gives us a sense of where we are when we come to to the end of Numbers 6 and this blessing that you may not have known that this blessing and this benediction that we often use at the end of services is from the book of Numbers. I would guess that probably not many of you have Numbers as your favorite Bible book, but maybe there are some of you out there. It's not an easy book to read, but here it is, this jewel of a blessing tucked in at the end of chapter 6 where we find that the Lord gives to Moses this blessing for Aaron and his sons to declare regularly. And it's been called the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. And it's a promise that we are to take by faith and to pray and to stand on. Three lines, verses 24, 25, and 26 contain this great blessing. And the first line is this general blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. Now, certainly that applies to everyday life. We need God's blessing and keeping to exist moment by moment on this earth. We need air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat, and we need clothing and shelter, and we need uh, others in our lives to help us. We need government. We need guidance from God. We need a job. We need strength. We need the abilities God gives. And so, part of it is like the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. The Lord bless you that way and keep you that way. I think it also has a deeper meaning applying to our spiritual needs and our final persevering, God's keeping power. We think of the the new hymn that we sing, He will hold me fast, that idea that the New Testament makes clear. 
or the benediction now him who, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you in his presence with great joy. To him be glory. And so that's the general beginning of the benediction or the prayer. But the second and third lines really are the deeper, I would say, more personal, powerful part. I want to look at each of those. The second is in verse 25, the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Here we get into the really heart of what this benediction is about in verses 25 and 26. Both of these verses using the idea of God's face or God's countenance, speaking of the presence of God in our lives and the presence of God in our lives in His pleasure on us in Jesus Christ, that He delights in us as a parent's face would shine on a child as he sees his child doing some new thing, maybe taking steps for the first time. And if you don't watch the child taking the steps and you look at the parent, you see the parent's face shining with joy. We think of how in Exodus 33, God was displeased with the Israelites for the golden calf incident. And God said that he, he would not go along with them. He would not be present. He, was, he would send an angel with them. And Moses is interceding. And we think of the fact that Moses saw the most important thing of all as if God would not go with them, nothing would be right. He wasn't even satisfied with an angel. And so Moses intercedes. We think of the presence of God in the sense of John chapter 1, where we're told, we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. The word is used in that sense. Or in in 2 Corinthians 7, where it says, God who said, let light shine in the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That idea of God's face shining upon us. We think of various psalms where the psalmists in later years went on to meditate on the idea of God's face shining upon us. And Psalm 67 begins, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In other words, what is it that enables God's people to tell the gospel to the world? It's that God would be gracious and bless us and to shine His face upon us in power and glory. We think of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law, and because he was in the presence of God, when he came down, his face was shining, and the people couldn't look at him. And he put on a veil. I think he put on the veil so that the people wouldn't see that the glory was fading And then there's another psalm, Psalm 80, that's a meditation on God's shining face. And Psalm 80 is a prayer for revival. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, the psalmist says, stir up your might and come to save us. And then in verse 3, the refrain comes, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then there's further discussion. And in verse 7, we see that refrain again. And then again 
in verse 16 at the end of the psalm, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the psalm pictures Israel uh, down and out, so to speak, we might say, with um, the vine that God had chosen failing now and needing to be revived and refreshed. And, and boars from the forest have ravaged it. That's often the state of the church, needing revival, needing God's face to shine on the church again. And I would just ask you, as we consider this verse 25, make His face shine upon us. Have you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in Him so that you know that His Word declares for you that you are accepted in the Beloved, as the New Testament says, that you are received as an adopted child of God through Jesus Christ, that your sin has been forgiven and the wrath of God has been turned away from you because of the Beloved Son, Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that at Jesus' baptism, The Father spoke and said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then again at the transfiguration, just the other week we saw the voice speaking, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And yet when it came to the cross, Jesus who was used to the presence of God and the face of God shining on Him every moment of His life on earth, and before that through all eternity on the cross, God's face was turned away from him and did not shine upon him. But Jesus bore the judgment of God, and he did so so that all who trust in him might never have the face of God turned away from them, that they might eternally know the favor and delight of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ did. Notice that the presence of God in the camp of the Israelites was a great blessing, but it was also, we might say, a fearful thing. It's like C.S. Lewis writes in his Narnia series about the lion Aslan, that Aslan is not a tame lion. The book of Numbers shows us a God who is not a tame God. It wasn't like you could put God in a box. Uh, It wasn't like you could say, well, as our society would say, you know, I'm sure that God looks on all of us and understands us and, you know, He puts His arm around us and knows we're okay and I'm okay, you're okay, and everyone's okay. No, our God is a God of holiness beyond what any of us imagine. And the Bible speaks of this. Our God is awesome. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's a verse from the New Testament. But our God has come near to us in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the last phrase of the prayer. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord lift up His countenance. Some of the commentators uh, tell us that that phrase, turn His face toward you or lift up His countenance, of course, is, is an idiom. It's a, it's a way of speaking about God Uh, we would say it's an anthropomorphic way. It's using the idea of face, just like we would say the hand of God, and, and God doesn't have physical hands. But one commentator says that the language is probably equivalent to saying in English, the Lord smile upon you. It has that sense. I think of Jesus with the rich young man where 
Matthew tells us, he looked at him and loved him. I think that's a beautiful verse. That here Jesus was calling this rich young man to give up the idolatry of his heart, which was money. And he looked at him and loved him. And how often did Jesus take the time with the crowd pressing upon him and everyone wanting a piece of him and that he would touch or heal a person and he would do so with a focused attention on this person. I think of the woman with an issue of blood and the crowd is pressing upon him and he's hurrying along with another man to do another healing that he was going to do, and she touches Jesus' garment. And Jesus knows that power has gone out from him, and he stops and says, someone has touched me. Um, And the disciples, you just kind of imagine them, uh, Lord, the crowd is pressing upon you, and you say, someone touched you. And Jesus looks at the woman who identifies herself, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You just see the smile of God through Jesus Christ upon this woman who has come to faith in Him. What an example of the face of God turning to a person in grace and mercy. And then the blessing, the benediction, closes with that verse 27. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Literally, I myself will bless them. God is saying that He will fulfill this blessing. This blessing, you see, lies in a relationship with the living God, knowing His grace, knowing His peace, knowing His keeping power. And we think of that, I think of someone like Eric Little in Chariots of Fire who could say, God has made me for a purpose. He made me for China, but He has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure on me. And I think about that example, and I think about how God is a God who wants us to delight in His face shining upon us. And He wants us to know that He intends to bless us, and He has already done so supremely in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.31 says, If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, freely give us all things? Do you believe the promises of God's blessing? Three words of application about that. Number one, We only enter into this blessing by coming to Jesus Christ. If you haven't come to Jesus Christ, may you come to give Him your life and trust in His work on your behalf. But then secondly, and maybe you could think of this when you receive benedictions week after week, that it's not just an ending like saying the end, now you may go, but it's a way to receive and stand by faith in the promises of God's Word. And when the benediction is pronounced that you would resolve to believe it anew and take anew the gospel that is your rock foundation, no matter what your circumstances might be this week or no matter your weaknesses or your discouragements, that you would believe the Word of God anew because we need that every day and every week. But then a third application, to continue to seek a deeper walk with God to seek His face daily. It's interesting that in Psalm 
27, in the middle of that psalm that's about fear and the Lord being our light and our salvation, the psalmist says, you have said, speaking to the Lord, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So the Lord has told us to seek His face. There's the psalmist's resolve anew in the circumstances of his life right there to seek the face of the Lord. You and I often feel like our lives are in the wilderness. Lots of things can make us feel that way. How do you need to seek God's face this week? May you do so. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your promise of blessing, of your face shining upon us, and thank you that you accomplished this once and for all through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand, and now pouring out the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the church afresh. Lord, may you do that in each one of our lives. Use your word by the power of your spirit. Lift up our weak knees, Lord, and our dragging feet, and help us to seek you afresh this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.